Welcome to BDO's Health and Life Sciences Rx podcast, hosted by BDO's Health and Life Sciences leaders. Learn more about the trends disrupting health and life sciences and how companies can survive in an ever-changing landscape. So we all know that, drug, that the drug development process is laden with risk, it's costly, and, um, and it's a time-consuming endeavor. And it's made even more challenging with, with growing and changing demand. In this panel, we're going to explore the oft-overlooked key to success in drug development. That is knowing when to, to kill it, the time to kill a drug development. We've got a great group of panelists to discuss this topic, and um, they're going to uh, come up onto the, onto the podium. First, we have David de Graaf, who's the CEO and president of Comet Therapeutics and brings 25 years of R&D experience to our panel. Secondly, Michael Crander is the senior director of business development for the Allen Institute for Brain Science, and a, and a, a, which is a leading nonprofit medical research institute. And Paul Rudensky, partner at McDermott Will Emery, who advises companies at every stage of product development. Our moderator is Howard Levine, who has extensive experience in the biopharmaceutical product development and commercialization. So we welcome all of you and come up to the podium, and uh, we look forward to, to hearing your conversations. Pleasure to, uh, to be here to, uh, to host this panel. Um, today's discussion is a little unique at uh, this conference because everybody comes to San Francisco for J.P. Morgan to talk about the wonderful successes that they've had with their drugs and the potential of their drugs and the potential and future for their companies. But the reality is, as we all know, that at least 80% of them are going to fail at some point along the way. Um, and we're going to explore what some people might consider a taboo subject today, and that is knowing when to kill a product and when it's time to, uh, to, to move on. And so I, we have a, a great group of panelists here um, today. We've had some opportunities to discuss some of this beforehand, um, and so I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I hope you all are as well. So um, to get things started, um, let's talk a little bit about the why of development and why do most programs end. And so, David, I'll start with you and give you an opportunity to uh, make some comments. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was, I, I'm, a, I'm a recovering pharma guy. Uh, I now do small startups. Um, and one of the, the great opportunities we had is actually do a retrospective analysis of what are the success factors. Because as Howard said, actually for large pharma, the failure rate, if you start counting from the first idea to a drug to, to market, is on the order of 99%. Fewer than 1% of programs work out. Um, there are some very easy predictors of success, for example, uh, if you have a fast follower, if you have a drug that acts in a similar mechanism to a drug that's already on the market, and suddenly your chances shoot up from about 1% to about 15%, which still tells you that making drugs and getting them on the market is pretty hard. Um, so what we looked at was what are the things that you need to have in a program in order for it to be successful 
in a phase two to phase three transition. That's the moment when you've established that the drug is working, that it's doing what it's supposed to do, and that it's safe and efficacious. And it turned out that there were three very easy lessons, and they sound pretty straightforward, even to people who may not know all that much about making drugs. The first one was knowing how to test that your drug would actually get to the place where it was supposed to act. That sounds pretty straightforward and simple, and if it's about your liver or your skin, it might be, but if it's about your brain, that's not a particularly straightforward question to ask. The second predictive factor is having an assay that told you that the drug engaged its target, that it actually bound to the target that it was supposed to engage in. The third one was that it then elicited the biology that you'd predicted. You didn't need to know everything about what it would do, but that the piece of biology that you'd link to disease, that that was affected. Um, and the difference in terms of success and failure, if you even lacked one of those particular uh, factors, which is, again, these are not easy things to build in, you go up from a 4% success rate, phase two to phase three transition, to 85%. Um, so there are things you can tell, and I'm a discovery guy, that relatively early that will tell you whether you're going to be successful in that transition. And then there are obviously commercial pressures and other reasons why dr drugs don't develop, which I won't touch on right now, but they're a part of this. Great. Um, Michael? <clears throat> well, I, I come at it from the uh, uh, small biotech side, emerging biotech side, was lucky enough to start with Immunex back in 1980, and it was just research. Uh, we probably spent, like, my tell my father, he said, how do you have a stock price when you don't sell anything? I said, we sell stock. And, and, and people, <laughs> people bought stock. Uh, you know, back then, you could clone you know, IL-2, and you had a couple hundred million dollar market cap. Obviously, today, things have, have changed radically. But, uh, but I've been associated with multiple biotechs, commercial pharma companies, and most recently, uh, many, many emerging companies through venture capital. And I... Uh, I don't really, I, I know you, your, your filter you know, makes sense, but you, you really don't see the filter. People seem to fall in love with something, That's they right. push it, and you're sitting there a few years and a couple hundred million dollars later in an off-site hotel room with some person you never met before who's from the, the, uh, the clinical company who's going to unmask the data and break the randomization code. You, you're sitting there with three or four people, Piece of paper pops out, 0.067, you're dead. It, and and, and no, one, no one was prepared for that. Uh, and you ask yourself why, because the numbers that I look at uh, are that of some 17,000 phase ones tracked by bio, um, it's single digit that make it to market. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you are 100 million in with all these really smart, passionate people from, uh, and believe me, the people are incredible. That's probably why we do this. Um, uh, the people and then what we're trying to do, patients. But you have all this brain power and you they have no clue, really, why you're still looking at a 90% failure after $100 million of screening and of expertise and FDA and manufacturing and boards of directors and experts and the, the numbers keep coming up. I, I don't know that it's going to get uh, uh, better, but it's something we do and we'll have to continue to do it. And, and killing it's not... It, very seldom do you do you make a decision to kill. The gravity kills it, um, and a small company investors kill it because it's you're done. Okay, uh, I one company. If, if you're familiar with venture capital, you have seed and you have Series A. 
uh, and if you're lucky, B and, and C. Uh, did one company that had uh, EGF I, one, and two. By the time you get to two, people have headed for the exits. Uh, but that company went on after, you know, all the way to the end to come up and, and get a drug approved. So it's, it's very hard to dissect this process. Paul? Great. So I come at it from a somewhat different perspective. Uh, I'm uh, a lawyer, but also a physician by training. And in between my, my two careers, um, I worked in clinical research for a pharmaceutical company. And I knew I was going to go back to school. So I was doing this to get some experience and then also to learn about drug development. So I didn't have, when I joined the company, as much of a long-term invested uh, interest since I knew I was going uh, to go back to school. But I did want to learn and understand a lot. So I was uh, brought in uh, because I had done a fellowship in liver diseases. And they wanted someone who could help dissect and understand about liver-related uh, drug toxicities. And I uh, was brought in for uh, some CNS products. And this is uh, a number of years ago. And at that point in time, really we're looking for novel uh, classes of agents for schizophrenia that would not have the toxicities that the phenothiazines did or the hal haloperidols, which were the products that were in use when, when I was uh, in, in training that uh, we had. One of the things that, though, was clear was there were some very good biological models and chemical models to look at what caused the adverse events that you would have with phenothiazines. And those models suggested that these products, the new class that we were working on, did not have those. But at the highest doses and longer durations in animals, you saw some related uh, uh, findings. So the idea was still to bring this, this into man, because the, the, uh, the thought was that, that these types of side effects would not likely uh, show up. One of the things that happened, though, and this, again, you really have to not only be thinking about you know, just what you're going to be looking for for safety and efficacy, and then also the commercialization issues and dosing issues, cost of goods issues, all of which may be reasons that products get killed. But you also have to really understand the relationship between the clinical pharmacology and what you're looking at. And these products all had sulfur-related uh, compounds, sulfur bridges. And we all knew, and this is part of the reason that I ended up doing this, was that sulfur compounds often cause liver toxicity. So we saw some uh, spikes in liver-related enzymes uh, in the first couple of patients. Now, because these uh, were for patients with schizophrenia, the early phase two trials were with patients with schizophrenia. The company did not want to uh, kill the products, even though we started to see these, these abnormalities in the first couple of patients in phase two. So we actually had to devise and get through an IRB a dose challenge study in patients with, with schizophrenia. And we set a stopping rule. And the stopping rule was we would uh, redose, do no more than a half a dozen patients. And if we saw more than 50% have even minor elevations in the, in the liver function uh, tests, that we would stop. And that would be it. And part of the thinking was we were seeing some liver-related toxicity. This was going to be difficult to prove the negative. We knew that if we did carry forward, we were going to have some major safety studies that we were going to have to do. But also, there was always, at least in my mind, at some point in time, because of what we saw in the animal models, given enough dosing and enough duration, we probably were going to see some of the side effects that we had seen with the other classes before, because we did see it at the highest doses. So we did the re-dosing re, uh, trial. Uh, I think it was two out of four patients did 
show minor but definite elevations of the, of the liver-related blood test abnormalities. That was our stopping rule, and we stopped. I wasn't familiar with uh, the teams. I, I was relatively new. But I was so surprised at the reaction when we did decide to kill the drug. I would hear from various folks like, are you crazy? Look at all of this money that's been spent. But I think the key, at least for me, and I think it was the right decision for the company, is you got to know when to let go. If your pharmacology suggests that something might happen and you start to see it, it probably is going to happen. And you probably need um, very substantial studies to be able to prove that that's not the case. It may be that if you truly are you know, a first in class and you've got something that really you really think from an effectiveness le- uh, perspective might be dramatically different, that that would then warrant it. But many, many times, we try and convince ourselves. And that's what I was hearing all over from the company were people trying to justify. It clearly had the liver-related issue. Uh, we had tried the challenge, and it was there. Not necessarily you know, anything fatal or causing acute hepatitis, but it was clearly there. We created a stopping rule, and we stuck to it. It's difficult to do that. But if you are honest with yourself and really looking at the relationship of the pharmacology and efficacy or pharmacology and safety, you can make those decisions. It's an interesting perspective. And, and we will come back to the question of stopping rules and force disciplining yourself to, to stop things. But before we do that, um, I want to just explore another aspect of why companies might kill a drug. We talked about the medical reasons, the scientific reasons, but often there are business and strategic reasons that a company may want or need to kill a particular program. So Michael, you alluded to this a little bit at the end of your remarks about investors killing a program. Do you want to elaborate on that or add to it? I think what you, you now see is investors and pharma uh, are putting up very tight filters. Okay, it used to be again you could discover something and you could get investors to push it through, and you could do an A and a B and a C um, in preclinical. It, it is very difficult today to get venture capital for a preclinical asset, no matter how exciting or beautiful it is, unless it's AI and we can come back to that, but or Bitcoin. <laughs> but if you have a preclinical. Uh, idea today, the VCs have just said, no, we're not taking that risk. Pharma won't take it. Uh, and so the risk now of, of, you know, of stopping is kind of flipped on its head because it's hard to start now. And it's not a good, it's not a good development. But this, the starting part is really difficult in investors. And every pharma company has 100 people in business development, okay? a huge amount of people. And there you go and you know, pray to that altar and try to get in the door, and the screens are really, really tight. So uh, it, it, investors will, they used to feed a company. You could see biotechs that were 10 years old or 15 years old, you know, failing but just surviving. That doesn't happen anymore. You pretty quickly get the, the plug pulled. It's, it's actually, because pharma is acquiring earlier, the money cycles have gotten much shorter, and now investors need to be able to recover their investment within a couple of years, and even within 10-year funds. If you tell a story where it's going to take you five years to get clinical evidence, there's a lot of pushback. And that makes it really hard. You have to tell stories where you can say, we're going to get into the clinic very rapidly. Because ultimately, that's the proof point, is once you're in patience. Um, and that's one thing that I would like to, to add to this. Um, <clears throat> we are really bad at knowing upfront whether a drug is going to work, because we're very good at curing mice. 
And it turns out that mice aren't humans. Uh, so there's not a rampant issue, for example, with oncology in the mouse community as far as I've been able to observe uh, in traps in my house. Uh, but we're very good at curing that. So we're, what, what you see is that the reward for passing particular milestones, these very tight gates, actually have no relationship to the reality of clinical medicine. Um, and that some of the commercial gates often have no relationship to the reality of medicine either. So the example that I have is I worked for uh, a large company, Pfizer, uh, and we developed uh, a version of insulin that could be inhaled. Uh, it was a product called Exubera, and we were exuberant about the product. We, people who were afraid of needles would be able to inhale insulin. Um, so the product was put out, uh, and we had spoken to every KOL in the area, and they said, also, oh, about, about a quarter of my patients have, are needle averse. They're really afraid of needles, and they don't want to inject. So the, the marketing people come in, predicted the billion-dollar market. Um, within the first week, and I don't know if you remember this, there were five arrests for people at airports because it turned out that the in inhalation device looked a lot like a bong. Um, and so people were being arrested left and right. The product did $25 million in its first year. We had not really talked to patients or talked to the patients about their experience. Patients were okay with self-injecting, even if they were needle-averse, because establishing a protocol for a diabetic patient that works for them takes a while. And now taking that away from them and then re-establishing with completely different dosing and a different way of administering was so disruptive that even patients who were needle-averse weren't actually ready to go and switch. But when we talked to their physicians, the physicians said, oh yeah, they're going to love this. They're going to get this done. So it's really hard to often understand what the ultimate pressures are in the marketplace. Is there any way to predict those? Well, actually, talking to patients turns out to be incredibly important. And I think, and I'm doing startups, that you need to do it when you start. Uh, so we are and I'm starting a company right now, and one of the areas of focus is a set of diseases called inborn errors of metabolism. These are very rare, found in, uh, in children when they're born, uh, and they can't metabolize something specific. Um, and we are now reaching out to patient advocacy organizations, talking to parents to understand the realities of the lives of the parents and of the children. Again, the, the primary reason drugs fail is the models don't predict the human outcome. And some of that is trial design, but the majority of it is the model design. So what you do see now, and there's a commercial for the Allen Institute, what we have done is, is created human-based cell lines that are uh, that are that are perfect models, and our goal is to push, and we're giving them away. Uh, they're completely free to the research community, and the idea is to begin to base models not on a, a, a HeLa cell from some person 10 years ago, or a mouse model, or a, a monkey model, non-human non primate, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to say, uh, but, but actual human cells, growing up organoids that are, that are biologically the same as the human experience in a kidney or a cardiovascular cardiomyocyte, and, and, and that will, the whole idea, and that will come, and that will give you much better predictive outcome. How did, it, how did the human uh, disease model work? And, and that's coming in, and genomics are coming in, and uh, epigenomics, and it, so you, you do see that coming in, but it, it's been amazing how long it's taken that to, to really come forward. And again, pharma, uh, their screens are set up on models that they like and trust and are invested in, so right. you're, that conflict is coming, or it's underway, and, and I think you'll get there, and you will have better data to make the decision, but the, 
will people decide? That's, right. um, we'll right. keep coming back to, will you truly make the hard call? So uh, uh, along those lines, um, you know, everyone obviously wants to be part of a successful blockbuster drug development program, um, but not all drugs are going to be there. And as, as we've been talking, not all are going to make it. And you, you start, we're starting to hear the phrase fail fast or fast to failure more frequently these days as a means of, you know, partially recognizing that we don't have the models to predict, and we have to get into humans to see whether these products are really going to work or not. Um, how can you? How can we, as leaders of companies and um, thought leaders in the biotech and pharma industries, how can we help people understand this concept and get to that failure point quicker to make the decision to? cut the drug because if we can stop a drug earlier in development, we can save money and the overall cost of the successful drugs that ultimately make it to market can be lower. So thoughts, ideas, comments on how we might get to that fast to failure point sooner. I think that um, you have to look at you know, all of the different filters and be honest about it and have stopping rules. Uh, one of the things that to me has always been quite difficult, especially when I started to work more on the reimbursement side and the outcomes research side rather than the clinical development side is, and, and just as, as you're saying, the clinical development folks are rewarded on, you'll have an NDA filed as of such and such a date. Many times, a number of the key pieces of evidence that we need to convince a payer to pay for the product at all or to pay for it at the price we want are substantial pieces of, of, of additional information that are well beyond what FDA requires. I get it. I fully understand that as you make clinical trials more complicated, first of all, you increase the risk, you may increase the time, you increase the cost. And so there's often a tension between what R&D wants and really what you need mm -hmm. successfully to commercialize the product. And that's often where <coughs> I've seen problems is because a product will get through and then the NDA got in, the, the folks on the R&D side are rewarded, but then the commercial folks are left, I don't have, I don't have something that I can really carry forward. And that's often an area where I see that, that, that part of it is, especially in larger companies, is due to these you know, almost institutional structures that are, that are set up that really aren't getting to really what's beneficial is having a product that's safe and effective and that we can sell in the marketplace. And that, that we can sell in the marketplace isn't an afterthought. That, that's the piece that's that, right. that people off, most frequently neglect is the, can we sell this product in the marketplace? So, I think the key is to figure out a way to change the mentality of company managements to perhaps change, change the way scientists and um, physicians are rewarded mm -hmm. in the development cycle. But how do we do that? I think some of it is, it's like I said, you, you really have to think through and set up, and they're not necessarily complicated, but what are all the filters? What are the risks for those filters? What are the outcomes that you need to see? What are the dollars that you are going to need to, to get against that? One of the areas that I struggle with in, in, in my work often is the companies have spent the dollars in order to, to secure the IP. They've spent the dollars to secure on the R&D side. They haven't spent the dollars on the reimbursement side. Mm -hmm. And then they'll assume that somehow, magically, that if you are just a really good salesperson, you'll be able to get 
get this through. Mm -hmm. In today's environment with managed care, with where Medicare are and other payers really being very smart in a lot of these areas, you can't snow them. You need the evidence. I just went with a, a company to talk to Medicare recently, and the R&D folks said to me, this is all you're going to have. And I said to them, Medicare's been really clear. This is what they want to see. We have other products in kind of similar situation. They are clear on what they want. I'll go in. I'll do the best job I can. But they know that I know what they, they're, they're asking for. Mm. And the answer that comes right, well, you know, we just didn't fund the studies for this. Well, then don't expect that the product's going <laughs> to do that well. Um, and that, to me, again, gets back to what the board is told, what the, you know, the funders are told mm -hmm. is actually necessary to get the product through. And if you haven't thought of each of, of these potential issues, whether, like I said, one product that, that I worked on a number of years ago, it died not because it wasn't effective, but it was very clear that the cost of goods structure was going to be too high to then have, have a product that, that, that could work. Another. It turned out it was going to be BID dosing. We already had enough once-a-day dosing products. So you, you really have to be honest with all of these different factors, have rules, understand what you know, you're going to need uh, in order to make those decisions, but also understand what you're going to need to, to it's, buy. It's like, for example, the pricing structure for curative therapies, like gene mm -hmm. therapies. It, this is a huge issue right now because we can see we can change people's lives, but we don't know how it can result in a growing company. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on a little bit and switch, switch tacks a little uh, and talk about what happens once we actually do make a decision to kill a program, stop a development of a drug. Um, you have a lot of people who invest a lot of time and emotion in that product. What strategies can companies use to redivert those resources to new programs and to motivate and incentivize people to you know, really pick up, the, uh, uh, pick up the banner for a new product and not be too demoralized by the failure. I had an insight in terms of small company life, uh, privately held company life, uh, yesterday when I took a, a, a Lyft to, you know, Uber, Lyft. Um, it's a gig economy, and it's a gig economy for people who do small companies as well. So if things don't work out, um, you're waiting for your next ride. Um, and it's a, a, it, a high-risk, high-reward. Uh, you know, it's probably better to be in biotech than to ride Ubers. But um, you, 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 you get the parallels. And then we've really changed from that model, from redeploying resources internally, to a model where everybody is in a gig economy, including people like me. And we touched a little bit about this already earlier on. But um, when we look at large companies versus small, um, and the decisions and the impacts of decisions to fail or, or to, to stop a program are very different, can be very different in a large versus small organization. So um, can you comment on some of the, what some of those impacts are and how, how companies can manage them? Well, I think one thing that, that I would say, um, I mean, I. Uh, my experience in a large company was in a global pharmaceutical company. And when you're making certain decisions, it's not always easy to translate to a foreign parent why you're making those decisions, especially if, if any of it is based on things that are kind of unique to our, the American idiom. 
And so some of those are, are really being able to explain and to translate and to continue to explain. And a lot of that has to, again, come from upfront communication and agreement. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're planning. These are our rules. They don't necessarily need to be that rigid, but, but this is what we're looking for, and this is how we're going to make our decisions. And are, are you, you know, buying off on that? Are you in, in agreement with it? Uh, but it still can be, be quite difficult when, uh, especially, you know, you have different cultural uh, uh, philosophies about, about kind of working for companies and what, where teams are and, and what it means to, to, to be part of, of a particular group and how easy it is to shift to another group. Mm -hmm. I think in the big companies, clearly they have the opportunity to reassign and reallocate, and it's a mothership. I know it's still a lot of pain goes down. Mm -hmm. If you're leading a program or championing something and it doesn't work, you know, it's not a career ender, but it's definitely uh, painful. Right. Uh, and, but I, th those people have it a lot easier than your small team, private, where you turn to everyone and say, well, we're going on salary deferral. And they're like, what? So we're going to defer our salaries by half for next year to stretch the cash because our investors have told us here's the, the milestone, the killer experiment. And uh, that happens quite often. And uh, you, you never really see pharma doing that, but that's the reality of the, you know, right. of, of, of the, the gig economy. And you have your big pile of stock options, and those are interesting, uh, but they're, you know, hard to... To, to, to pay with. So it's a fundamentally different, uh, uh, you know, effect, cause and effect. And again, in a small company, when, when you don't hit your, your number, it's basically you, you have, you know, you go out to dinner and, and you move on to the next one. Can you provide an example of where you either personally in your company or know of an example in another company where, where a drug had to be killed, but ultimately there was a success that came out of that, that failure, whether it be repurposing the drug or developing a new drug or some other positive outcome of a failure. One thing that I can say in the example that, that I gave at the beginning, which was the drugs for schizophrenia, uh, because that program failed, it actually opened up a relook at uh, some of the antidepressant products that, that were in the portfolio. And there had been some, some early work in obsessive compulsive disorder with one of those products. There was nothing on the market for obsessive compulsive disorder. And because there now were resources to allocate, there was a relock there and actually ultimately did uh, carry forward the first product that was uh, FDA approved for obsessive compulsive disorder, which was, was obviously a, a major need and probably would not have dedicated those resources to that if the schizophrenia program had moved forward. I, I feel reassured. Right. <laughs> so I've, I've got one great, great example as well. I actually was involved in a project uh, for one of the large farms I worked for where the drug did the exact opposite of what it was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to lower the activity of a pro-androgenic factor, a factor that make, made blood vessels in tumors. And what it did is it increased the vascularization of the tumor. The tumor brought in more blood. Um, and I luckily had a really smart mathematician standing next to me, a biomathematician, who said, well, of course, that's what we expect. And I won't bore you with the explanation, but very quickly realized that this was a generalizable property, that if we modified molecules in a very specific way, instead of stopping something, we could actually increase it. And we've just started a company around this con uh, context 
We're raising funds for it right now. I hope to close our first round of financing next week. So that was a failure that led to a big insight, which is going to result into, in, into new medicines. Michael. A, a trend that's evolved over the last few years. So, so in the old day, it was think of an idea, form a company, fill out your org chart, raise some money, and go. So you had hundreds of companies, mm -hmm. really skinny uh, skill sets, a great idea, uh, but, but really not the right tiger team, right? So what, what really has evolved is uh, virtual companies, and I don't mean you, know, you don't do any work, you virtually, you, know, you, you work hard in a virtual company, you don't hire a bunch of consultants, you, you, you outsource things, but you tell them what to do because your brain trust that you recruit. So this, this virtual company of, of really smart people who, who are really experienced, who've been through the wars, they're on your Tiger team, everything is outsourced. Mm -hmm. And then most importantly, it's also what they call a build to buy. So you've already got a pharma acquirer or bio acquirer. You've already been through their screen. They're the ones setting your goals and objectives. They say, you've got the right people, you've got a great idea, here's your two-year flight path, and if you do it, we will take an option. So the build to buy virtual company model um, is, is, has evolved rapidly, and it's, it's really the only way to go because you don't have a $5 million a month overhead. Mm -hmm. okay? You're not uh, building, you know, you mentioned $150 a square foot for, for space and a, you know, manufacturing and 40 people on, on staff. You have a, a, a virtual company uh, in a build to buy. Those can actually, uh, those, those can uh, survive failure mm -hmm. because you, you demonstrate, you know, you, you, you have the right team, you've been efficient, capital efficient, you've hit your, your marks, and, and oftentimes that, that pharma company or that investor group will give you a second chance because you've, you've executed properly. Right. If you've just fluffed it, then, you know, pull the plug. But th those do work, and I think you'll see more of that, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, tighter screens, the, the, the right team, um, and, you know, very clear objectives and funded properly. And if you win, you win. If you lose, you know, it's biology. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BDO's Health and Life Sciences Rx Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you'll visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also subscribe to BDO's Health and Life Sciences Rx blog by visiting bdo.com slash blogs slash health and life sciences slash subscribe.